Look with me again at Romans 8, beginning in verse 28, and we'll um, read together through the end of the chapter. And we'll read through the end of the chapter just to, just to kind of give us a taste of things to come. We're not at those things quite yet, but, but this will be a taste of what is, what is coming and how these three verses that we've been camping on uh, do flow into and lead into a whole series of questions that the Apostle wants to ask us as we reflect upon the things that he sought to communicate to us in these three verses. So begin with me at verse 28. And we know that those, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, having given us your word, we want to ask again this morning that you would come and walk among us by your Spirit's power and presence and take this, your precious word, and press it into the hearts of your people and minister to them in the deep, deep recesses of their souls in those places where doubts and fears abound, where unbelief needs to be uprooted, where our subtle idolatries, those gods we trust that cannot deliver, are slain. Do all of this by your word, for your glory, and our good. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Some uh, years ago, um, over at Beachland Elementary School, um, long before most of you were a part of our congregation, I shared a story about a little girl named Casey Lichtenstein. 
There are a couple of folks uh, in the room here who know Casey. Uh, Casey was the adopted daughter of Jim and Pixie Lichtenstein, who were members of our church in Orlando. Casey was their first adopted child. Skipper came along later. But Casey was their first. And in our church in Orlando, we used to come forward for communion for the Lord's Supper. And when that happened, parents would bring their covenant children. And the elders, as we served the elements to our folks, I'm planting a seed here, by the way. Um, As we would serve the elements to our folks, we would pray for our covenant children. These children who had been born into Christian homes. And so Jim and Pixie, the first Sunday that, coincidentally, that KC was in their home, was also a Sunday where we were observing the Lord's Supper. And so Jim and Pixie brought KC into the service of worship. And when it was time for folks to come forward uh, to receive the communion, they brought their little adopted daughter with them so that she could be prayed for. But they didn't know what was going to happen. And as I approached Pixie, who was holding this just days-old little girl in her arms, as I approached her with the tray of bread, she reached for the element, and I pulled it away. And I put my hand on the head of this little girl and prayed for this covenant child. And, and the prayer that I prayed was, was simply this. The gist of it was this. This little girl is a picture of the gospel. This little girl has been rescued from God knows what. A future filled with God knows what. This little child has been plucked from uncertainty and who knows what and has been placed in a home where a mother and a father believe the gospel and believe in Jesus and will pray for her and will teach her and will raise her up by God's grace to know the Jesus whom they know. And when I say it, said amen, and opened my eyes and looked at Pixie, she was sobbing, sobbing. And then I served communion to her. Folks, that picture has never obviously left my brain. It is a picture of what God has done in my life. It is a picture of what God has done in the life of every Christian. In love and grace and mercy, He has plucked me from a life of God knows what. And He has inserted me into His family, giving me a name, giving me an identity, giving me a hope, giving me a purpose. Again, Paul's aim in these verses, verses 28 to 30, is not 
to be provocative. It is not to be controversial. It is not to be troublesome. Paul's purpose in these verses is supremely pastoral. His aim in these verses is to press deeply into the hearts of those who are reading or who are listening to this letter be read that they are safe. That's what this whole section is about. Chapters 5 through 8. But supremely, that's what chapter 8 is about. Paul writing to people in the midst of struggles and discouragements and a battle, a fight, the fight of their lives. Paul writing to give assurance to people. I've had a number of comments from a number of you over these last two and three weeks about these sermons and and this sort of camping on these verses. And you've told me that they've been good sermons and you've thanked me for the good sermons. I, I don't know what a good sermon is. But here's what I do know. A good sermon, at the very least, is a sermon that helps people. That helps people. And if this camping on these verses, these sermons, has been a help, a comfort, an encouragement, providing assurance to those who fear that they're not safe, who wonder if they're secure, who wonder if there's something they have done or or are doing or ever could do that would cut them off from this love and mercy and grace of God, if they're finding that in these sermons there is a measure of deepened assurance, then I am glad for that. That is the ministry of Jesus among us. That's what Paul is concerned about and is aiming at in this whole section and in these verses. So I want to pick up where we left off last week and I want to continue to wrestle with these things and and think about these things and, and by God's grace have them be pressed deeply into our souls. We ended last week looking at this word to foreknow. We, we looked at what good is. And one of the members of our congregation said to me very, very recently, it was so helpful to have some understanding of what good means to God. How God views the good. His purpose for you is a good purpose. A purpose that conforms to his very being and character. A purpose which leads ultimately to the experience of shalom when God stood at the end of his creative activity and looked at everything that he made. He said it's all very good. It was all pulsating with life. It was all pulsating with the reality of his own existence. It was characterized by abundance and liberty, and joy, and beauty. That is the good that God has in view for you. And we talked about what it is to be called, that when God calls, it's not like getting a telephone call. It's not like receiving a summons from the court to be a part of a jury. Paul uses Romans chapter 4 as a way to help us understand 
what it is to be called, that God calls into existence things that do not exist. That when God calls, He calls things that are dead into life. And that is what He has done for you and for me. He's done the very same thing in you at the spiritual level that He did in the creation when He summoned into existence things that did not exist. Things that do not exist cannot give themselves existence. Things that are dead cannot give themselves life. God does this. And so my deep and abiding assurance is not in my ability to do something that I'm powerless to do. But my deep and abiding assurance is in what God has power to do. And then we came to this word, to foreknow. And I suggested to you last week, That foreknowing, in effect, means foreloving. Foreloving. And these words to foreknow and predestine and justify and glorify, and then Paul introduces in verse 3 this other word, election. These all work together. They all hang together. They are terms that relate to one another. They are like a cord made of strands woven together. You can't separate one from the other. Now when people come to this, to this matter of foreknowing or of electing or of predestining, it it raises questions, and I realize that, and that's why I want to spend time this evening interacting with those questions. So please come. But one of the questions that is raised, or one of the objections that is raised, has to do with this word, to foreknow. And I've suggested to you, and I'm convinced that this is what it means. It means to forelove. But people through the years have suggested that this term, this word foreknow, simply means to know in advance. And the thinking runs like this. The idea goes something like this. God knows in advance. He knows everything in advance. And he knows specifically in advance those who will know him or those who will choose Him, or those who will seek Him, or those who will follow Him. And so those whom He foreknows, He then elects or chooses. Now there's no question. Let's respond to this. There's no question that God knows in advance. There's no question that God knows tomorrow, today, What will happen tomorrow? He knows tomorrow, today. He knows what will happen to you, for you, around you, throughout the whole of this cosmos that he has made. I want to do a bit of a throwback, and I'll do it just briefly, but you'll remember maybe from months ago, this whole matter of the nature of the knowledge of God. I don't want to be too abstract or or, or too uh, deep with these things. But I just want to remind you what it is that the knowledge of God encompasses. The knowledge of God encompasses a whole lot more than just the fact that God knows what is going to happen tomorrow. It's even bigger than that. It's even harder to wrap your brain around than that. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't. There's only one person in the universe who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. But God knows way more than that. Remember, the four levels of God's knowledge. God knows all particular things. 
that exist as they particularly exist. He knows the chair. He knows the screws that hold that frame in place so that the cushions can rest upon the chair so that you can be comfortable. And oh, by the way, you're another particular thing sitting in that particular thing. And all of the atomic and subatomic particles that make you up that are innumerable, he knows every single one of those. He not only knows everything in particular, all of the specifics, but he knows all particular things as they are related to all other particular things. He knows them, in per- he knows them perfectly in all of their relationships. And here's where it really becomes Excedrin headache number 431. He not only knows all particular things as they exist, really and truly, in all of their actual relationships to one another, but he knows all of the potential relationships that all of those particular things could have to one another. I don't know how many people are in this room. 100, 120. You're in the particular chairs you're in. You, you, you could be arranged in multiple different ways. And God knows all of the multiple different ways in which you could be arranged. But then there's a fourth level. God not only knows all particular things in all of their actual relationships and in all of their potential relationships, He knows things that do not exist but which might exist. In the sense that He knows things which might exist in one form but could exist in another form. And He knows things that do not exist but which might exist. I don't have a brother. I could have a brother. I could have 14 brothers. I don't know how my mother would have responded to that notion. I could have a brother. I don't. I have a sister. I could have a brother instead of a sister. I could have a brother in addition to a sister. That could be the case. And God knows what that looks like if it is the case with Everything that flows out of something that doesn't currently exist, but which might. That's the knowledge of God. It's big. Now, what we don't have time for this morning is the, is the answer to this question. What is it that accounts for the fact that things are the way they are? And the answer to that question is God. And what God decrees out of all of the possible things that could happen, what in fact does happen. God is the answer to that question. Ultimately, not in a mechanistic way, gets into the whole business of secondary causes and the fact that people make real choices and that somehow those real choices perfectly conform to what God has decreed. See, headaches, man. If you're not listening to this and taking a step back and saying, whoa, this is way bigger than I am, I'm not sure you're alive. I'm not sure you're awake. When you begin to wander into the being and character of God, if you're not amazed, if you don't marvel, if you're not caused to take a step back and say, whoa, God is way bigger than I ever imagined. I'm not sure you have a heart beating in your chest, an imagination in your soul. Does God know in advance what's coming down the pike? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me just suggest to you that that is not the meaning of this term in this text. God certainly does foreknow in that sense. But God knows very differently from simply knowing about or possessing facts 
there are two questions that emerge, it seems to me. If we, if we try to go down the path of saying that God foreknows and because he sees what somebody is going to do, he then in turn responds, you're still left with the question in the first instance, how do I account for the fact that someone, anyone, chooses God at all? How do I account for that, particularly given what Paul has said in Romans 4.17 regarding God calling into existence things that do not exist, regarding God causing things to live that are dead in light of what Paul says in Ephesians 2 as he reminds the Ephesians that they were dead in transgression and sin, dead, not weak, not helpless, but dead. What accounts for the fact that they are alive spiritually. And the answer in Ephesians 2 is simply this, verse 5, God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, raised us up. God gives life to the dead. That is it. The only way that I can account for the fact that I am a Christian or you are a Christian or anybody else is a Christian is that God has acted. And so does God look down the corridor of history and see those who will respond to him, who will embrace him, who will love him? He absolutely does. But what accounts for the fact that they do that is God's grace in raising them from death to life, which is rooted and grounded, listen to Ephesians 2, rooted and grounded in his love. God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And that then is the second thing. It's just to remind ourselves that this word no is significantly greater. Significantly greater and significantly more wonderful than simply knowing facts. It involves God's personal acquaintance, personal engagement with, personal loving of those who are known. To foreknow is to know personally, covenantally, lovingly. Just remind yourself of these verses. Genesis 4.1 Adam knew his wife. Don't you find that striking? Adam knew his wife and she conceived and gave birth to a son. The incredible intimacy that there is between a husband and wife and particularly involving human sexuality and the coming together of two human beings in sexual union is described in this way. It is one knowing another. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Listen again to John 10. I'm pressing this because because I've had comments from you, and I want to keep pressing these things so that we understand what the Scriptures mean when they use these terms. See, here again, I've got to set aside my definition of the terms. I've got to set aside my understanding, my nuances, and I have to listen to the Bible as the Bible talks about these things. 
Jesus. John 10, verse 11 and following. Listen to this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. If you want to dive into the incomprehensibility of what it is to be a Christian, do you hear Jesus saying that he knows his sheep in the way that the Father knows him and he knows the Father, their union, their love for one another, their delight in each other, knows no limit. They don't just know information about each other. Their knowing is mirrored in the knowing of Adam and his wife Eve. The union, the inextricable union between father and son and between father and son in the Holy Spirit is imaged, is mirrored, is in some small way replicated in the union that exists between a husband and a wife. And Jesus says that he knows his sheep in that way. With all of the personal identification and love and delight that are taken up in that idea of knowing. John 17 verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, oh my goodness, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh in order to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life. That they may buy a copy of Charles Hodges' three-volume systematic theology, or Wayne Grudem's pared-down one-volume systematic theology, so that they may know a bunch of stuff about you. No. Jesus defines eternal life with this most incomprehensible of terms, that they may know you in the way that I know you and in the way that you know me, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's how a Hebrew person thinks about knowing. Relationally, with intimacy, with delight, with affection. And so to foreknow simply means to love to delight, to have affection for in advance. That's that's just what it means, folks. In my heart of hearts, I'm doing my dead level best to tell you what I believe with all my heart the Scriptures mean by this term. And it simply staggers me.
To be foreknown is to be foreloved. And to be foreloved, then, means to be chosen. I want to show you just one passage. I was struck by this this last week. Deuteronomy chapter 7. As God speaks to Israel and reminds Israel who they are. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7. Listen to the language. Folks, listen to how connected these notions are. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And remember that Israel's story ultimately isn't really about Israel. That's another soapbox thing i got to get on. Israel's story isn't really about Israel. It's about the Israel within Israel, which we'll come to in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But it's about the greater Israel. It's about the true seed of Abraham. It's about those descendants of Abraham who are like Abraham in this way. They believed God and they counted it. God counted it for righteousness. And they are both Jew and Gentile. That is the Israel of God. And so when you read here, when you read Israel's story, you're reading your story. And when you hear God speaking to Israel, He's speaking to you and listen to what He says. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Don't ask me why. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. And then verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love upon you, foreknew you, loved you beforehand, set His love upon you. He set His love upon you, and having set His love upon you, He chose you to be His treasured possession. It was not because you were more in number, nor because you were strong, because you were mighty, because you were handsome, because you were pretty, because you accomplished things, because you did stuff. No, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. What is it that accounts for the fact that the Lord set His love upon you? It's verse 8. It is simply because the Lord loves you. You ask the question, why does the Lord love me? Because He loves me. There's no daisy involved in this thing, friends. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. The Lord foreknows. He foreloves. And having set His affection upon me, a particular sinner, upon you particular sinners, He has chosen me. And having chosen me, He has predestined me to this outcome. That's what predestination is. It is simply determining, get this definition, it is simply determining beforehand the ultimate outcome or destination. Election is to choose. Predestination is to determine the final outcome. And what is the final outcome? I've said it to you before. Glory. Conformity with the image of Christ. That you might be like your big brother, your elder brother Jesus. 
that you might be his younger brothers and sisters and share in all of the blessedness of the inheritance of the elder son. He foreknew, which is to say, he foreloved. And having foreloved, he has chosen. And having chosen, he predestines you to glory, determines your final outcome. When I was a student at Bethel College in Mishawaka, Indiana, not the one up in Minneapolis-St. Paul associated with John Piper and those folks, but another one, a little one. I'd been a Christian less than two years. I know where I came from. And I was a student at Bethel College and I was trying to figure out what the gospel meant and what it meant for me and how it worked itself out in my life. And, and I was reading Ephesians 1. I read these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, having chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us in love to be adopted as His children, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. I was sitting in a, in a Quonset hut dormitory room, reading Ephesians 1 all by myself. And I'm just telling you honestly, not that your experience should be mine, must be mine, but I'm telling you I read that first paragraph of Ephesians 1, those first few verses, and I broke down and wept and asked the simple question, why, God, should you do this for me? Why me? I know who I am. I know what I am. And you, before the foundation of the world, inserted me in love into Jesus Christ and sent Him into the world to purchase my redemption so that I might be a trophy of Your grace. Why me? Folks, what Paul is seeking to do here, again, is ground our assurance not in ourselves, but in God. Willfulness, self-reliance, unbelief, the arrogance and the pride that we inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve, an arrogance and a pride which say, I will be God, I will be the author of my own salvation, I will be the determiner of truth, I will be the one who determines what reality is to be like. 
is a deeply rooted arrogance and pride. And even among Christians, in me and in you, it continues to seek to insinuate itself into our understanding of the gospel. And Paul is seeking to drive us outside of ourselves that our assurance might be grounded not in me, but in Jesus. If my believing is the final explanation for my believing, if my believing is the final ground of my assurance of my acceptance with God, what happens when my believing falters? If my performance, what I do, the right things I do, the good things I do, if that is the ground of my assurance, what happens when I do the wrong things? If my religious experience... Okay. I'll get in trouble with, for this one, but I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to run the risk. I've never listened to a sermon by Joel Osteen. I've never read one of his books, but I wish he would wipe that smile off his face because the smile doesn't last. If my assurance is grounded in my experience of the love of God, I'm in deep trouble. Paul, in these verses, is seeking to drive me out of myself and to ground my assurance, not in who I am, what I've done, that I believed, that I know certain things, that I have had certain experiences. He is seeking to ground my ultimate assurance, well-being, hope, peace, comfort in God himself. He is seeking to ground your assurance in this. That you have been loved for a very, very, very long time. And you will be loved for a very, very, very long time. And in the midst of the struggles, you will not stop being loved by the God who loved you, who saved you in the first place, and who will not stop loving you ever. There is one answer to the question for why Casey Lichtenstein is a member of the Lichtenstein family. It is the kindness of her adoptive parents. There is one answer to the question why you are the younger brother or sister of Jesus. It is the incredible kindness of your loving Heavenly Father. That and nothing else. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I need this. You know I need this. This is for me, but it is for all of us. Oh, please, ground my assurance not in myself. I have failed you. I have sinned against you. I have hurt you. I have grieved your spirit. I did it yesterday. You know it. 
I know it better about me than I know it about myself. Ground my assurance not in myself, but in this infinite, high and deep and wide and long and eternal love which you have set upon me from before the foundation of the world. All to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.